A group of 13 men descend a narrow switchbacking trail, arriving in a meadowy swale full of wild grass, flowers, low trees, flowering bushes. The sun is dropping low in the western distance before them. They are nearing the end of a day-long walk, southwest out of the seaside region. They are getting closer now to the hometown of their teacher. He is walking at their head in the company of Philip and Bartholomew. Bartholomew is telling him a rather involved, somewhat inside joke. The teacher inclines his head to make sure he doesn't miss any of the pertinent details. When the punchline lands, he laughs in a sort of generous way. It wasn't a particularly funny joke. Everyone else had already heard it. They cross the bottom land and begin walking up through the trees, up another switchback, jogging along back and forth with the trail up that next last rise. The teacher knows they are nearly there. These are his childhood ways. At the crest of the hill, looking west-southwest in the dropping light, there it is, Nazareth, his town, nestled down amongst the brownish hills. He pauses at the top to take it all in, as one does. His disciples only see an insignificant little township. And it was in this way that he left the seaside district and came into his own native town, followed by his disciples. His literal homecoming is perhaps worth telling, too. For less than an hour later, the dusk light gathering quickly, all the villagers home at their family's supper table, this band of thirteen approaches a small house. Low willowy trees whisper with the sound of the wind blowing through overhead. The windows of the house are open. The front door is just cracked. And pouring forth from inside, much less mellow than the flickering of the lamplight glowing out, are the familiar voices of the brothers, sisters, brothers-in-law, and sisters-in-law of the teacher. His brothers James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and his sisters and their husbands, are all crowded around the table of his mother Mary. Jesus opens the front door, followed in by his disciples. Mary looks up and sees him, a serving dish in hand. Her heart simply thrills at the sight of her boy. Now, the day after the next, I want you to imagine, as we have before, this whole town of people streaming toward their village's synagogue. Mothers dress their best, trying to straighten wayward hair of their children. Fathers wondering what exactly their wife meant by that last comment at breakfast. Children seeing their friends along the walk, trying to run over toward them, disappointed that this beautiful morning will be a total loss spent inside. Ahead, the open door of the Nazarene synagogue. At the doorway stand the headmen, dressed in their Sabbath fineries, watching the crowds approach, feeling that low little thrill of self-importance. Everyone, both those approaching, these faithful men, women, and children, and those already there, their leaders, are profoundly bored by this whole religious arrangement. Every week is precisely the same every week. But this is what one does. Every Sabbath, 
generation after generation. So now imagine the entirety of the town already seated inside, all in their accustomed, time-honored locations, and that natural quieting down beginning to occur throughout the congregation. The chief synagogue leader begins his walk toward the front. When, in the back, Mary, widow of the village carpenter Joseph of the line of David, comes in through the door, followed by all her sons, daughters, and extended family. And back of her comes the disappeared heir to the family business, Jesus, the one now rumored to be a teacher, and back of him, a motley band of seeming disciples. Unseemly would be the way that many in the congregation would describe them. The chief synagogue leader, seeing him there in the back, having heard of his recent reputation, makes a fateful decision kind of on the fly. He invites Jesus forward to read and speak. Jesus, with a quiet nod, comes to the front. And so it was in this way, when the Sabbath day came, that he began to teach in the synagogue. And here we're going to invite our friend Luke in for some of the details. He stood up to read the scriptures, and the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. He opened the book and found the place where these words are written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he shut the book, handed it back to the attendant, and resumed his seat. Every eye in the synagogue was fixed upon him, and he began to tell them, This very day, this scripture has been fulfilled while you were listening to it. The congregation was astonished and remarked, Where does he get all this? What is this wisdom that he has been given? And what about these marvelous things that he can do? He's only the carpenter, Mary's son, the, the, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and his sisters are living here with us. And they were deeply offended with him. So he said to them, I expect you will quote this proverb to me, Cure yourself, doctor. Let us see you do in your own country all that we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Then he added, I assure you that no prophet is ever welcomed in his home country. I tell you the plain fact that in Elijah's time, when the heavens were shut up for three and a half years and there was a great famine throughout the whole country, there were plenty of widows in Israel, but Elijah was not sent to any of them, but he was sent to Sarepta, to a widow in the country of Sidon. In the time of Elisha, the prophet, there was a great many lepers in Israel, but not one of them was healed. Only Naaman, the Syrian. But when they heard this, everyone in the synagogue was furiously angry. They sprang to their feet and drove him right out of the town, taking him to the brow of the hill on which it was built, intending to hurl him down bodily. But he walked straight through the whole crowd and went on his way. So, quite obviously... 
He could do nothing miraculous there, apart from laying his hands on a few sick people and healing them. Their lack of faith astonished him. And though it was clear he couldn't stay on in town after such a particularly warm homecoming, Mary's heart still saddened as she watched he and his disciples depart upon the trail they'd come in by. He would never see his hometown again. Then, arriving by night, back to the seaside region, uh, back to his home base in the town of Capernaum, he made his way around the villages, continuing his teaching. He and his disciples traveled by fresh early morning, spent the days strolling around those villages, stayed in a different home or side road each night. It called up all the reserves of their power to maintain such a, a joint schedule, until one day, after his morning prayer, he had an idea. He summoned the twelve and began to send them out in twos, giving them power over evil spirits. He instructed them to take nothing for the road except a staff, and no satchel, no bread, and no money in their pockets. They were to wear sandals and not to take more than one coat. And he told them, wherever you are, when you go into a house, stay there until you leave that place. And wherever people will not welcome you or listen to what you have to say, leave them and shake the dust off your feet as a protest against them. Matthew, the former tax collector, remembered a few of his other words that day. He wrote them down. Jesus said, don't turn off into any of the heathen roads, and don't go into any Samaritan town. Concentrate on the lost sheep of the house of Israel. As you go, proclaim that the kingdom of heaven has arrived. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cure the lepers, drive out devils, give as you have received without any charge whatever. Here I am, sending you out like sheep with wolves all around you. So, be as wise as serpents and yet as harmless as doves. But be on your guard against men, for they will take you to the court and flog you in their synagogues. You will be brought into the presence of governors and kings because of me to give your witness to them and to the heathen. But when they do arrest you, never worry about how you are to speak or what you are to say. You will be told at the time what you are to say, for it will not be really you who are speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Two sparrows sell for a farthing, don't they? Yet not a single sparrow falls to the ground without your father's knowledge. The very hairs of your head are all numbered. Never be afraid then. You are far more valuable than sparrows. Every man who publicly acknowledges me, I shall acknowledge in the presence of my Father in heaven. But the man who disowns me before men, I shall disown before my Father in heaven. Anyone who puts his love for father or mother above his love for me does not deserve to be mine. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And neither is the man who refuses to take up his cross and follow my way. The man who has found his own life will lose it. But the man who has lost it for my sake will find it. 
So these pairings of disciples went out and preached that men should change their whole outlook. They expelled many evil spirits and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. And as Jesus watched them walk away, fanning out across all parts of the Galilee with his message, he lay down under the spreading branches of a tree. There was a smile on his lips as he fell asleep in the late afternoon shade. For the kingdom of heaven was arriving, and it was arriving through his friends.